Good evening. How are you? Glad you made it out tonight, even though it was a cold, uh, cold evening together. And uh, it's just encouraging to be together as a church family, isn't it? And to sing songs like that, like we've just sung, and to confess our faith with each other, and uh, to just uh, thank, be thankful for the wonderful work of God and Christ on the cross for us, to save us, to redeem us, and uh, to, uh, to take us into glory. And so we are anticipating that. So it's a privilege that I have tonight to share the word with you, and I'd invite you to go to the book of Philippians, if you will, tonight. Philippians in chapter 4. So here we are. 2023 is upon us, and uh, God has graciously seen us through the last year, 2022. And though on one hand I could say we could say it was uh, definitely one of one year for the books, uh, full of, in my in my perception, it was full of a lot of dark valleys. I must say, uh, not all dark valleys, not all difficult times, but. Um, Think about the last year. Spent time this week just thinking back over what the Lord has led us through as a church and considered about the number of dear, precious saints that worshipped with us at this time last year and are now in the presence of their Savior and Lord and uh, enjoying that. Um, Even if we thought about back last year at this time, there would have been no intimation that these friends would not have also continued with us through this year, but the Lord had other plans for them. And so 2022, for most of us, or many of us, was fraught with a lot of grievous sorrow, yet we sorrowed with hope. However, as in a case like a church like ours, um, 2022 wasn't without its soaring heights of joy as well. I know we had, over the past year, we watched several join together in joyful union and marriage and covenanting together before God. We had dozens of little ones, I don't know if it was dozens, but it certainly seemed like dozens, of little ones that were added to the church family, and uh, the joy that brings with it. We also had um, many, many people come in conversion and testify to that conversion and faith uh, through the baptismal waters at our church. So we rejoiced together as a church this year quite tremendously. And such is the year in the life of a church. Uh, we might well presume that 2023 will likely have the same in store for us this year, that this year will sweep the full spectrum of joy and grief together. And there will be faith-testing hardships, no doubt, the Lord has in store for many of us, and yet there will also be faith-rewarded happiness. And maybe not in equal measure, but we we may encounter these unexpected tragedies while others may experience unprecedented triumphs. And as I contemplated all of this this year, this text came up in my mind, and realizing that it would be deeply profitable for us to spend this time here at the beginning of the year to make ourselves as ready as possible in every way we possibly can, to stand firm and resolute before the Lord in the face of 2023 that is already now here upon us. Paul writes our text here, Philippians chapter 4, 8 through 9, to a, uh, a church that was definitely overcome in a lot of ways with a lot of worries and concerns and trials and of all kinds and uh, writes this wonderful letter of joyous hope and confidence and encourages them to stand firm. I want you to see John, uh, Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 and my text is going to come from this section from 4 verse 1 down to 4 verse 9 where the main thrust of Paul and his main uh, intention in this is to shore up the church, to steady them up, um, to face the trial that lies ahead of them. So 
that's, in the, that's in the pipeline of what he's thinking here as we go here. But I want to kind of frame it up in the same way that he did here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, I don't know if I have this up here on the screen. Hey, Tim, would you mind clicking on the, there you go. I'm going to have, I'm going to see if I have control now. There we go. Perfect. All right. Therefore, my beloved brethren, first one, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Uh, where does one find stability? The, you know, the wherewithal to stand firm and unmoved and clear-minded, especially when everything around us seems to be shifting and turning. And how do you remain stable when sometimes the struts of your life are cut out from underneath you and it could be something like a sudden loss of a job or the death of a spouse, a massive heartache of a wayward child perhaps this year, a tragic loss of your home or betrayal by a beloved friend, a shocking terminal diagnosis, a devastating financial loss. These things happen routinely in the life of a church like ours. And all of these can send you reeling into an anxious and frenzied state and disrupt your balance spiritually. What you need is to drop anchor in this text and, and, and let the waves and winds around you come in 2023, 20, but to not move you off course or to capsize your life. But if you really want to reap the benefit of this text, you'll, you'll want to get really intimate with this precious piece of scripture. This passage will settle your heart. It's going to stabilize your faith. It'll buoy your hope. When you're able to use this text to capture your thoughts and to respond to them biblically, you can withstand whatever the next year will bring. And so in Philippians chapter 4, the text we'll take tonight is right here in verses 8 and 9. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Lord, we thank you for being a God of peace. Uh, you are without any doubt a God of peace, uh, one who produces peace in the hearts of your people. And, Lord, can see us through difficult and challenging times. I ask, Lord, that you'll bring peace and stability to us today as we open up the new year and as we walk forward together in faith with you. Show us how we might conform our thinking and living in the disciplines that you'll show us here in this passage so that we can enjoy the peace of your presence as we endure the trials that will come forward ahead of us. We ask these things according to your word. Amen. As I thought about this text, you know, along the way, Philippians chapter 4 is known for this passage in verse 6, where it talks about being anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How many of you have actually memorized that text or think of that one often? I'm sure that many of you do, and uh, it's a favorite text. It's, it's clear that Paul is not breaking off his connection to that idea in this in this chapter six and seven or verses six and seven, and continues along with us in the subject of our thoughts and what our thought life is is all about. And maybe think about our brains. You know, our brains are true marvels of God's creation. The exact way in which our brains are able to process information and thoughts still mystify and amaze scientists today. 
Neuroscientists tell us that if your brain is an average one, which looking around I would guess for most of you that's true, uh, if your brain's an average one, uh, it would weigh about an average of three pounds. Uh, that's relative to your body weight. It's about 2% of your entire body weight. Yet it consumes about 20% of all your energy and all your oxygen resources. It's protectively encased in, a, in your cranium, floating in a bath of cerebral spinal fluid. Your brain and its 100 billion neurons is humming at an RPM of about a thousand uh, uh, about 2,100 thought, thoughts per hour. Each one of those 100 billion neurons is capable of transmitting as many as 1,000 nerve impulses per, per second, creating tens of thousands of synaptic contacts with other neurons. And the neural network of a one human mind is 30 times more complex than, a human, than any supercomputer that we have in existence. So these neurons are transmitting and they're firing thoughts in the form of electrochemical signals across the synapses of your brain, and they create wrinkled pathways on your brain's surface that widen and deepen with the frequency of your thoughts. But your mind is much more than just weak electrical signals whizzing around a lump of gelatinous goo up there. Other animals also have brains, and they function somewhat similarly. But the human brain is capable of some unique capacities, some unique uh, abilities, one of which is that we're capable of self-reflection and introspection and contemplation. We humans are unique in our ability to ponder our own ponderings and to contemplate our own contemplations and to muse upon our own musings. Man is the only creature that possesses this ability to self-analyze, to, to self-reflect, or to introspect, or to be a philosopher, to philosophize. This unique ability to think about what we think about is, well, something to think about. With an estimate average of 50,000 thoughts per, um, per day, 50,000 thoughts per day coursing through your brain, it isn't difficult to see why we often become easily overwhelmed and anxious and overstimulated. And that's why we need this text. When this passage is applied and functions in helping you to adapt your thinking so that you're at peace to be at peace, you can remain firm in the Lord and be stable instead of frying your circuits. As we look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, we might be, help, might be helpful to think of this as an adapter passage. I ever, if you ever travel overseas, you'll never become more thankful for that little block that attaches to the cord that charges your cell phone, that little adapter that helps transform all this, uh, this electrical current into power that your phone can use to recharge. I think of this passage as kind of like this adapter, has this adapter function. Um, if you were to plug your phone directly into a 120-volt outlet, it would probably roast your device completely. Your device would explode because there is no, nothing to reduce and to inhibit and to transform and to resist the overwhelming power that would transmit immediately to your device. The adapter works with little resistors and capacitors and transistors that allow you to adapt this overpowering 120-volt service down to the exact correct voltage that your phone can actually use to charge itself so that it won't overwhelm the circuits and render your piece of your phone into a piece of useless toast. So if you want to be careful, if we don't be, if we aren't carefully placing this scripture into our mind and using it to transform the thousands of thoughts that are coming into our minds, we won't be able to adapt our thinking to truly Christian ways of thinking. We will not be able to exhibit the peace of God in the minds of our, in our minds and in our life. 
And you'll, you'll too find your circuits fried for what seems like, with a seems like a million overwhelming, debilitating concerns, which will wreck your, your testimony and your usefulness and your joy in Christ. So this passage, I think, is really helpful. Paul here is going to give us, and the Philippians here, by the way, he gives it to the Philippians, but we're going to learn by extension, two practical disciplines that produce the peace of God. Two practical disciplines that produce the peace of God. And you'll, they'll be driven by two primary imperative commands within the text. You'll see the first one appears in chapter 4, verse 8. It says here, dwell on these things at the end of verse 8. That's the first command. And the second command is uh, found in verse 9 where it says, practice these things. So it's a beautiful little uh, two commands, real simple here. And we're going to put it in just a simple way for you to kind of package up and take with you tonight. Uh, We're commanded in this passage to do two practical things. Two practical disciplines that we say are evaluate what you're thinking and then emulate what you've been taught. Now, Paul has done this several times in many, at, the end of, at the end of many of his epistles. He includes what we call paranetic material, which is just rapid-fire commands back to back to back, just kind of uh, like a loosely string-related commands that we see at the end of Ephesians or 1 Thessalonians, to strongly urge the Philippian church to resist the tremendous pressures to go wobbly in the face of trial and to stand firm. And the, this admonition was needed since the Philippian church, if you would perhaps recall the church was continuing to oppose or be opposed with fierce persecution and the believers were suffering there similarly as when paul had arrived when he was when he was there in Acts 16 and was then therefore put into prison now the church is undergoing that same kind of persecution and in addition to this others had risen up among the new believers there and as proclaiming that they were preachers of christ and yet they had self-serving motives that was Uh, sought to add affliction to Paul, and this unsettled the church as well. In addition to that, Epaphroditus, who was a trusted servant of the church, had been sent to minister to Paul while he had been in a prison and had not yet returned, and he was sent with a sum of money and perhaps some other valuable things to help Paul, and he hadn't been heard from. So this was also creating no, no little amount of concern, and there were also false teachers rising up who are gaining influence within the church. And on top of that, we see a bitter dispute has broken out in the church between two women. And apparently the whole assembly uh, was aware of it and the resolve had not been resolved. So all this combined for a certain bit of unsteadiness in the church. And added to that, Paul stood in, you know, stood in jeopardy of his own life. The tenuousness and the anxiety that might have pervaded around his fate eventually, whether he was going to stand trial and be um, put to death or not. That all would have been very much on their minds as they were thinking in terms of Paul. So this creates a great deal of anxiety for the Philippian church and precipitates why Paul is addressing this very subject in this passage. So Paul writes to them to this rock-steady letter of assurance, and full of, it's full of joy and rejoicing at how God's using these incredibly difficult circumstances for his great glory. And the whole passage is really centered around these two imperatives. So let's look at the first one, the first practical discipline that Paul exhorts us with, is evaluate what you're thinking, or in his words, dwell on these things. Um, one thing we notice 
Paul begins with the remarks, finally. Like any preacher, he says, finally, and everyone begins to perk up, thinking maybe this is him winding down his message. But yet he has still some, some, some things to say. Uh, so false, false uh, alarm there. And really, that's how it rendered finally, finally is rendered that way in most English translations. But what we really ought to understand is that he's really saying, furthermore, or even beyond this, uh, in addition to all that I've said, I want to uh, kind of encapsulate, encapsulate what I've said in just a short few uh, verses still remaining. Paul encourages that uh, the church, with that in addition to prayer, which he's just given them in verse 6 and 7, in addition to prayer, that they should be carefully evaluating what kinds of things in their mind um, that their mind thinks about, and that will further assure them in the peace of God that will subdue their heart and mind. So I, I think sometimes people look at verses like this and they think that Christians' remedy for all anxiety is just prayer, like simply just pray and then somehow anxiety just magically lifts and or somehow supernaturally will just go away. But that's not really Paul's full remedy for the anxiety that was afflicting the church. He, he, prayer, of course, is significant and key to what he's talking about here. And he, he mentions that here, verse 6. But he's going to quickly move on to not only just prayer, but he has, he has other things in mind. Um, prayer alone doesn't um, counteract my anxiety and bring me peace. Paul encourages that in addition to prayer, that diligent evaluation of the kinds of things that are entering our minds and troubling us, that those things should be evaluated and that will further assure that the peace of God will subdue our mind and heart. So he wants us to have not only um, prayer, but a, a predetermination to uh, filter and test our thoughts, to ensure that, they, that we dwell on things that will comply with these, I think, eight kind of qualifiers, eight qualifications that will now come in the text and will help us understand more clearly what he means by testing our thoughts. So it's not an exhaustive list, but it is a comprehensive one, one that which we can call up, uh, which we are called upon to assess the character of our thoughts and to occupy our minds with. And uh, any thought that doesn't accord with these qualifications should be quickly met with truth from the scriptures and then dismissed. Um, so there's also the implication here that um, implication that only. Can we battle anxiety, but that we must do it? Um, anxiety sometimes gets thought of in terms of something that happens to us that we, to which we are a passive and helpless response. Uh, we have no, no responsibility to it. But the scriptures clearly tell us that we have these abilities to, to re- respond to them um, with uh, spiritual, scriptural aid and with the Holy Spirit's help. We certainly can. So... Uh, what kinds of things should I dwell on is the, is the actual natural question we encounter here in the passage. Finally, brethren, he says, and he's going to give you basically six relative clauses that are back to back to back. And then each of these are going to kind of highlight a specific test I think you can apply to your thoughts. And you can focus on, like, is, is that thought going to, is that pass the truth test? I mean, is that going to pass the honorable test? What I'm thinking about right now, what I choose to ruminate on, is this going to um, bring about the peace of God that's promised in this passage? And the first thing we see here is, for instance, is the true, uh, is it true? Meaning, is it morally upright or dependable? The word here in Greek kind of implies whether it's morally upright. Um, that which resp- corresponds to reality, 
okay? Something that's real. Uh, and it's the thing which is causing such distress and, and consternation and frustration in my life. Is it something that's actually originating for, from something that's real or, or something that's actually legitimate or genuine? Now, we must be cautious to evaluate that what we think, what we think so that we don't dwell on things that are uh, we don't dwell on things that aren't true, but are fabrications or assumptions. Uh, have you ever found yourself surprised by how quickly you can jump to false conclusions about things uh, or speculate about something or someone, and it's not authentically true? And those thoughts lodge in our minds, and they kind of kick up a series of subsequent thoughts that kind of make you a very anxious person uh, or can create a, settled, a, a disturbed um, sense in your in your heart our minds must be steeped in the truth of god instead and, and and we need to be asking ourselves more consistent questions like is what's bothering me actually based on truth uh that's the first thing so often if we can get practiced in the in the pattern of testing thoughts that trouble us with the first question is is this really true does this comply or comport with the truth of the scriptures or does it actually have a basis in reality at all and to begin to kind of put a stop in our thinking and, and, and ask ourselves some important questions. I, I, I write down a list of questions like this to help me when I encounter troubling thoughts. And I use this, this list pretty frequently. It says this, a couple things just to kind of suggest to you. Am I dealing with facts in reality or some supposed or even a remote possibility? You're like, what are the real odds of this thing taking place, that I've, this scenario I've dreamed in my mind, perhaps? Am I troubled by my own assumptions, my own false conclusions or speculations? Now, there's a lot of that going on in the context of the Philippian church, perhaps, about what's going on with Epaphroditus. What about the Apostle Paul? How about all these guys that are around here preaching Christ? What do we do about those guys who are saying bad things about Paul? And it's just, it, there's a lot, of, a lot of assumptions and a lot of speculations going on. What is bothering, you want to ask, is what is bothering me based in the truth of reality or fact? What does the truth of God's word actually say about the situation? So you're focused on the truthfulness of the thought. Does the truthfulness of what, what I'm thinking actually agree with God's revealed truth? And that may be a, a difficult question to answer if you haven't first made yourself very acquainted with the truth of God. Are you putting yourself, exposing yourself to the reading of God's word and understanding it and studying it? Are you in assemblies like this one where the word of God is taught so you can grasp the truth so it can be useful in helping you filter thinking that is unhelpful and, um, and unsettling. So first of all, you ask it, does it pass the truth test? Is it qualified as true? Second of all, you see here, whatsoever things are honorable. And this word honorable is an interesting word. It does get used several times throughout the New Testament. A couple of times it gets used in reference to in scripture to that of older men in Titus chapter 2 verse 2 this word honorable also gets used in terms of deacons and and even women in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 11 so it conveys this distinct note of seriousness and respectability someone who's honorable and so we we understand this to mean that Paul is is really saying that the Christian patterns of thought should be marked by a a general character of, of honorability or magnanimity or generosity or respectability that, that we don't immediately jump to unwarranted and paranoid thinking. We assume and put the best construction on things and try to give people the benefit of the doubt 
and be fair in how we assess our situations around us. So when we contemplate our thoughts about others, we must do so with honorable presuppositions about their character and about their motives. Suspicion and wariness and skepticism and mistrust not only are not becoming of a Christian, but they also make peace of mind completely impossible. So dishonorable thinking will toss your soul in a tempest. A mind that doesn't adapt to thinking whatever is honorable will always assume the worst in a situation rather than believing the best. Now, I'm not trying to prescribe for you some kind of Pollyanna theology here where you just just become ignorantly blissful of evil that could potentially happen, but that's, that's not what Paul's aiming at here. It's the unwarranted paranoia, the... the the um, suspicion, the distrust of everything and everyone for no warranted reason, that's going to absolutely sabotage your ability to have a peace, peaceful mind, having the peace of God. So I ask myself, does, it, does what I'm thinking pass the honorable test? And some questions that can help you with that is perhaps this. Is my thinking characterized by precept, noble presuppositions about others? Or am I bothered by the constant suspicion, wariness, and skepticism and mistrust? That's too bad that so many of us have carried these, these hurts with us, and we kind, of, we kind of use these thoughts and these, these dishonorable things, and we project them on scenarios and situations in the aftermath of that, and create a dishonorable way of thinking about situations in our life. We rather should put the best possible construction on things. Uh, we can't see the motives. We can't see the dispositions in other people's hearts. So we should not assume the worst rather than believing the best. So being a fair-minded way of thinking, giving the best, um, giving the best uh, tones to a thing, uh, to something, to a situation. So that's helpful for me when I think about that, to not assume the worst. Okay? So does it pass the honorable test? Is that what, you got to ask yourself that and work through that carefully. And... If it has passed these two tests, these, these only get more further refined as you go forward here. You see, it says here that uh, we should also think on whatever things are just or right, perhaps, your, your, your translation says. Most often, this word right, or this Greek word that stands behind the word right, um, is rendered just. And it can also in, in, involve that. And often speaks with reference to the righteousness that is in accordance with God's standard. So, though Paul seems to be using this term here with specific connection to God's righteous standard, he, he may also be using it in a broadest sense, which means it appeals to that which is commonly regarded as right. So, we're not satisfied to simply concern ourselves with only what God's standard of right is, but, but what do we give, we should, we should give regard to um, what people would generally and objectively consider as right as well. Um, Christian thinking is not simply preoccupied with how one might be declared right with God, but also how he might be set right with his fellow man. Ask yourself this. Is what I'm contemplating out of keeping with what, I might be com- what may be commonly considered right? Or can I have peace with God if I, if I do not have peace with man in as much as it lies within me to pursue it? Um, so I think about the justice question, and I, I begin to ask questions like this. Am I evaluating my thinking in according with God's standards or my own? It's very easy to substitute my own standards in place of what is right and wrong versus what God's word has revealed to me. Uh, is it possible that I have prejudged a situation? That's very easy to do. 
We're limited, finite human beings with limited knowledge and ability to see and understand all the aspects and the coordinating parts of a situation. Is my judgment without mercy? Sometimes in our judgment of things, we are quick to come to a wrathful state of things, state of, uh, of temper, and yet we don't practice the mercy. Are my thoughts in accordance with God's justice, or am I just looking for a pound of flesh? I don't want vengeance. Uh, what's, what's fueling my thoughts? What's animating those thoughts? And I, it's helpful to take your thoughts, stand apart from them, and, and run them through the just test. Does it pass? And do, are, they really, are these things really holding up to God's standards of righteousness, not my own? And so moving through, through our list here, we're now number four. We're looking at things, whatever things are pure, whatever things are pure, and of course, pure would seem to indica- indicate something of a uh, something of purity of thought or deed or motive, or even purpose. Uh, the word pure here sometimes is understood by many commentators that I read to involve mainly sexually sexual purity, which certainly is one extension and one aspect of pure thinking. And Christians who experience a peace of heart and mind ought to pursue sexual purity. And, uh, and any impure fantasies or language or anything that would uh, pollute or, or corrupt that. And I think that that is implied in this as well, but I think Paul's more sense using this more broadly than even the sexual realm. He's looking at it more in terms of what our, our th- we should be screening our thoughts for any kind of sinful impurity which taints our perception of a situation. You know, your anger and your own bitterness and criticism and self-suspicion or suspicion and self-serving motives, all these different things can imp- make your heart impure so that you're unable to fairly and wisely evaluate situations. And that makes you anxious. Anxiety is often tied with anger. Anxiety often comes out of situations where there's a deep and unset- unsettled suspicion of situations. And Titus chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that to the pure, to the impure and to the defiled, nothing is pure. Uh, it's, uh, it's reminiscent to me when I think of Matthew 7 where Jesus was talking about the one who would presume to judge his brother. And while he's looking at the, what he perceives to be the beam in his brother's eye, he, or the speck in his brother's eye, he has a beam in his own eye that's obscuring his own vision to be able to even practice careful discernment and judgment. Uh, and I think that that's part of what's implied in this. Well, we should be thinking about um, whether there are impurities in our own lives that are cause, causing us to misperceive what is actually happening and how, how anxiety is a fruit of the actual impurity in our own perceptions, in our own lives. Um, I like to run it through the pure test. I put it up here just to give you some questions to think through. Am I screening my thoughts without awareness of my own sin, which taints my perception? so quick to find the faults in others and yet so, so reticent to look hard, look in, uh, in depth at my own uh, areas of uh, need in my own sin. Uh, is the fault that I perceive in, in, another, in another really actually my own impurity distorting my assessments? It's fascinating when you work with people, or maybe you've even noticed this, that Maybe in a marriage where a husband or a wife are at, are at conflict with each other and the wife's complaining about the husband about how he just is never, he never thanks her for anything she does and he's, 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 just, he's just difficult to live with. And, and you just listen to her complain and you're thinking, wow, everything you've just said could have been applied to you. 
<laughs> you know, you think of that, uh, how odd and how ironic it is how we see the faults so clearly in others and are so unwilling to examine our own. And uh, I think that's, that's evidence of that your thinking is not passing the pure test, that uh, your conclusions about a situation can also be an overreaction because of some unresolved sin issue in your life. Your conscience is inflamed, and so you can become very... Uh, sensitive, overly sensitive perhaps in some ways, and react with anxiety and fear um, because of a a sinful issue down deep in the heart. So there's a pure test that you should be considering. And I think that that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of pure. Um, Is what I'm thinking actually qualifying as pure? Um, Is there something that's in my own vision that's actually distorting my perception of my problems, my thinking? And so, as we move on through the passage, we're, we're nearing the end here. Versus, uh, there's a fifth one here mentioned here called lovely. Qualified it as lovely. Is what I'm thinking actually lovely? And this is a fascinating word because it's actually the only place in Paul's writings. Is actually, uh, this term is not used anywhere in Paul's writings except for here. And if you survey philosophical literature, the contemporary time when Paul was writing this, you can't find it there either. So... It's an interesting word. It's kind of like you almost have to wonder whether Paul coined this word in particular. But uh, uh, it says, uh, basically, it speaks of something that is pleasing or lovely, um, something that is beautiful or aesthetically pleasing, and it brings pleasure. So, lest we should think that it's sub-Christian to occupy your mind with beautiful and pleasurable things, we are encouraged here to thoroughly enjoy and derive pleasure from whatever is beautiful, as long as it's reckoned glorious to God and is used in accordance with his intentions. So when I think about my thinking thoughts that are lovely, things that are God-pleasing and things that are motivated from, from love for my, for my Lord and love for, for my fellow Christian, my fellow brother in Christ, my fellow man. I wonder how much of my thoughts are actually distorted by a a lack of love or deficient love um, so that I'm not careful in that regard. So um, it's actually been, maybe it's been yours as well, but my my unfortunate experience to occasionally encounter a brother in Christ who's so overcome with a fuming hostility and a, a temper that's so ginned up over a political situation or a social situation or some cultural issue or he saw some injustice and it's just really got him twisted up. Some tragic event and his mind is so consumed with an unlove, with this unlovely, lovely, ugly thing that he's almost incapable of contemplating the lovelier and loftier things of God. And it's difficult to dislodge that from your thinking. And that can actually create a great deal of fear and anxiety in, 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 in situations like what we see in, even here in the Philippians state. So, uh, does it pass the lovely test? And come some questions with that. Does my thinking and perceptions reflect a sincere love for Christ and others? Is my thinking influenced by an appreciation and attraction to the beautiful and God-glorifying? Or has a fuming disgust or a foul temper displaced my ability to contemplate these things of God? Um, sometimes I find myself shocked at how I can have such unloving thoughts for others. And that's creating... It's creating the, the major anxiety in my own life. Um, so be, just be cautious of that. These are things that uh, kind of, if they don't pass these, we, the, the thoughts that you have don't pass these tests. You should dismiss them and 
quickly uh, redirect and recalibrate your thinking to align more quickly with this scripture, uh, the scripture here in front of us. And lastly, we have uh, it's qualified as of good repute. This is important. This is probably <laughs> this is the one. If I've gotten through the other five, the sixth one usually uh, kind of cuts me down pretty quick. And something of good repute is uh, speaks of something that's commendable or well spoken of or something that has uh, good attestation, something that's been credible, made credible here. So when he says, when you're thinking about things that, uh, as a Christian, when you're thinking about the things that could potentially be problematic, you should make sure that they're, first of all, well attested to, that they're credible, they have of, of good repute, okay? Um, is thinking things that are worthy of commendation. This can imply... Uh, in other words, that the Christians should not be dwelling upon rumors or scenarios that have been created in idle tales, uh, unconfirmed or unconventional advice. I think this is good advice for those of us who, whose minds can easily be given over to specious theories and reinterpretations of facts. And we kind of get uh, looking at scenarios from a friend who now puts a different paw on something. And uh, it's just different. It's, it's difficult to, to evaluate this, but you've got to make sure that what you're listening to is, is of good repute. Uh, one, one, some things you should ask yourself to kind of verify or test that is, am I screening my thoughts with fairness and dealing with the information? And is the information I'm getting, it, getting is it from credible sources or from people who have uh, direct knowledge of situations? Is it commendable? Is it fully attested? That is that there's that there's backing, there's evidence to back this up, or that there's actual uh, real substance to it. Or is my thinking spent dwelling on rumors and postulations and unconfirmed reports? I find that it's very difficult if your mind is constantly filled with the the the, the streams that come at us from news media or any kind of media. Really, there's a lot of things that come at us. We can definitely get so sideswiped by that stuff and without testing it through, rep- through the repability test. Have I been too willing to believe theories and reinterpretations of facts? Or should I rather practice the, the, the discipline of testing it for a good reputation? Is it, is it something that's going to be helpful and substantial in helping me think carefully and biblically to the glory of God? So instead of reorienting and compiling this list of virtues... Paul is compelling us to give our mental energies to thinking only what is worthy of the Christian mind in the highest sense. We're being summoned to fulfill our, or to, to fill our minds with everything that is ultimately true, honorable, just, lovely, pure, and commendable. To screen our thoughts for whatever is going to steal away our sense of peace and discipline our minds instead to evaluate what we think about to ensure that it conforms to the word of God. He does add two more conditions that I think is interesting to note here. You know, does it say evaluate what you're thinking, but he also says if anything is excellent and if anything is praiseworthy. And when he uses this final pair of conditional clauses, he's actually pointing us back. They're first, for Greek scholars in here who might understand this, is for first class conditions that are assumed to be true. Uh, is the idea is that if the first six things are true about your thinking, then so will the final two qualities here, whether they're excellent and praiseworthy. That is the full summation and full analysis, the final, the files, final word on the, character, the characterization of, those thinking, of that kind of thinking. It's excellent and it's praiseworthy. 
And so uh, this, is, this is the aim of how we structure our thinking. We want to make sure that we don't allow thoughts to ruminate and to continue to find a place in our thinking that haven't been thoroughly tested by these qualities. And then secondly, as we move on here, as soon as he says that, he no hardly breathes another word, and then he begins to tell us the second command, the second practical discipline that we should be uh, zealous to, to produce here that will help us um, in uh, um, finding the peace of God. And that's in verse 9. It says, these things, or the things you have learned, pardon me, it says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Christians are not are to be distinct in their stable way of evaluating situations. Their thoughts are not frenetic and all over the place. They are stable-minded people, or generally should be. That's, and that's helped along by the truth of the scriptures and by the careful process by which we evaluate what we allow our minds to entertain and think about. We aren't, given to, we aren't supposed to be erratic reactors caught up in the fits of emotional whim or operating on impulse and feeling or thrusting a moistened finger in the air and operating mindlessly to follow whatever the cultural winds dictate to us and how we should respond, how we should behave. Instead, if we, if we will have the peace and presence of God, we've got to control what we think about. We've got to arrest every thought and hold it at sword point until it, until it yields to the truth of God's word. And so... Not only must we practice the discipline of, what, of evaluating what we're thinking, but secondly, we have to diligently practice the, the discipline of emulating that which we've been taught and what has been modeled for us. So that's the second thing here. A second discipline that produces the peace of God is your careful emulation of what you've been taught. Where are you going to find good examples and, and models to pattern after those who might mentor you in the practice of stable living and stable thinking? Well, and God in his wisdom, of course, has constructed the church, which is full of Christians and believers who are mature and at, uh, at various walks in their, uh, various stages in their Christian walk. It can model for us this wonderful mentoring of how to live what we've been taught. And Paul is very clear here that he has himself has set a worthy example to follow and that he has committed to them a trustworthy pattern. And there is, of course, this obvious irony in the passage that you can't miss that the apostle's present condition <laughs> while he's writing this is one that really could, could is just makes me speechless uh, paul himself stands in jeopardy of his life i mean l- real danger now could potentially befall him he's awaiting the outcome of a decision for trial whether he will live or die isn't even entirely clear to him yet he's su- having suffered everything that he's endured for christ he doesn't appear to be shaken in the, in the slightest. Instead, he's writing to the Philippian believers about the surpassing peace of God and the accompanying presence of, the, of God and his peace, which is theirs in the midst of a trial. Uh, we might have expected Paul to otherwise been curled up in a fetal position somewhere in a dark corner of a cell, quivering and whimpering and puffing into a paper bag. But he's not. He's, he's abandoned. He, he was abandoned by many of his closest associates. He was, his reputation had been slandered. The churches. His life's work and labor seems like they're destabilizing because of the threats that are coming at them from within and without. It's a true wonder that Paul can even speak a coherent sentence, much less write this confident, coherent, joyous, contented, peace-filled epistle to his beloved brethren in Philippi. This is a real manifestation of God's amazing grace and trial for Paul. And Paul says, look at my example. 
you can practice these same, th- same things. None of us have been afflicted for the faith to the point where we might face real death. We've never been uh, driven from city to city because we've been stoned or thrown out or beaten within inches of our lives. And Paul, if there was a man who had struggles or who had a tendency to be, who could have a temptation towards the direction of anxiety, is showing us a good example here of what it means to think carefully and to practice these things that he's just outlined for the Philippian believers. Now, the tense of this is an imperative, but it's in the present tense, which suggests a continual and frequent action. Practice is part of the remedy for anxiety. See, anxiety is not just pray and anxiety will just suddenly lift. Anxiety goes away with prayer, a filtering of your thinking, and then this practicing of these things. It's a continual and regular, frequent action of obedience to practice and carry out the things that we know to be true, despite what your feelings might be telling you. He speaks this into their context of uncertainty, and he gives them some things to keep on doing. And in times of this great stress and uncertainty, when your faith becomes unusually challenging to live out, you can be tempted to throw, throw, um, to give up, to throw in the towel, to hang it all up. When you're particularly tempted to call it quits or even call a timeout, you can forfeit the peace of God. When it's time to actually put it into practice, you've got to see that God's peace is connected by a coordinating conjunction word here. And if verse 9, you can see it so, so beautifully here, um, that we should practice these things. And then the next word is and. <laughs> and connects the peace of God that's to follow. It connects it as a basically, it basically connects it as a result or an effect from the, um, the previous action. When you practice these things, the peace of God results. It comes about as an implied, the second part has an implied conditionality upon the first part. The peace of God is assured, assurance and reward given to those who remain faithfully practicing the duties and disciplines that they have been taught. So what things are we to be practicing? What are these things that he's referring to? These things that the Philippians had gained by personal experience with Paul. He alludes to them here. These things keep practicing. It's those things that he'd been embodying before them when he was with them in, in Philippi in the first place. So one thing we, uh, we can take, one practical application we can take away from this is that Christians aren't simply to just be mindfully dwelling upon things that are in some sort uh, holy and good and righteous and pure and lovely and good, of good repute. But Christians should be actually practicing that these things aren't just a contemplative Christian life. It is a practiced Christian life as well that drives us into and mobilizes us into action. Practicing the same things. Right thinking requires the embodiment of these virtues. The ideals must not remain rhetorical or just theoretical, but they emanate and they emulate through your life and that your life should mirror the mirror sound Christian thought. It's a great temptation to simply be theoretical Christians to speak a good theology, to, to have a good um, presentation from an exterior standpoint, and yet so difficult to harmonize that and match that up with, it, with a practice and a, and, a, and a pattern of life lived in light of this truth and the, and the carrying it, of it out. So um, the things which you have learned, he says, carry out these things which you've learned. And he does this really interesting 
uh, fourfold explanation of these things which we should be practicing. He said you sh- these are the things which you have learned. He says that these are the things which you have received. He says these are the things which you have heard. And these are the things which you have seen. And so clearly there, there's, there's things here that um, they were clear allusions to what they would have experienced when he was with them. The things which you learned. That, that is the, the things which you're the excellent examples of teaching and uh, we spend a lot of time in our church here teaching and instructing on the word of God. And those things are implied not to just be wonderful things we assent to and affirm in our minds and intellectually. But these things are, meant, are, are laid upon us in burden to, to practice and to live out and to seek uh, grace and help for, for carrying them out faithfully and living them. Uh, the, the things which you have received. This receiving language denotes some kind of a passing of a tradition. It's used in other places where it has the idea of a kind of some important, sober, holy, sacred thing has been committed or entrusted to, uh, to you, and it is something that you have responsibility to carry out. It's like a sacred trust that you have a duty in it to safeguard and to carry out and to protect from those who might corrupt it. These things that you have learned, it's a, it's a special treasure for you to have this and to carry it out. It's all sort of implied in the, in the, uh, in the language of the, of the word received here. You've received it. Uh, you've welcomed it. You've made it your own. Number three, he says here that these are things you have heard. They've been communicated through preaching and teaching, but... Presumably not just through the preaching and teaching, through personal conversations and letters which had been exchanged back and forth. Uh, The interaction that the church body had had with Paul, that was meant to inform the Christian life and experience and practice. And so that's uh, sort of how we understand the pulpit and the preaching ministry of this church as well. The preaching goes forth, but that's not the entirety of the Christian uh, instruction. The instruction happens also with the working of it out in the practice among the body. Uh, these things which you have heard, uh, you put them into practice, uh, whether they come from the pulpit or from uh, a brother, or a, a peer, somebody in your, fan, uh, in your small group or in your um, Sunday school class. They urge you into practicing the things that you have heard, and it's instructive for you to do that. And he says, and, th- and these things which you have seen. Paul gave them a model of what godly Christian life looks like. He says, uh, if you're still unclear about what, what you might be responsible for and how you might practice this Christian life, you may look at my life and see it. And, and uh, it may not be perfect in all of its ideals, but it was a coherent and consistent portrait of what a life live, looks like lived incarnationally before the, the church. Paul's faith was Enfleshed and embodied, and it was credible, and it was faithful enough for the Philippians to calibrate their lives to. I wonder if there's people in your experience that you can say, those are people I can model my life after. Are there people who I could, uh, it, that are walking closely with the Lord and are showing these signs of maturity and helpful um, Christian stability? Those are the people I want to follow and pattern after. And uh, Paul's... Uh, thoroughly commending that that here in this passage in his case specifically but i think otherwise we could extend it to 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 those around us in our church so the things you've learned and received and heard and seen me do and the god of peace will be with you so you might say realistically i don't even know where to begin sorting through the discombobulated overwhelming thoughts and cares of my life i'm exasperated confused and i need help well friend 
these things have been given to you and entrusted to you to help you wade through these, these thoughts, carefully pick them, pick them out and, and test them thoroughly through these passages of Scripture. And I assure you that the promise in the passage we just read is true and it will, it will be fulfilled. Let the Lord sift your thinking with his word. And the Bible says that uh, everything that you need to do this is already sourced in your relationship with Christ. Paul demonstrates his stability is sourced in his own relationship with Christ. He, he, there's no other explanation behind why he would be able to undergo the trouble that he endured in, the, in, in this context in Philippi and to emerge with his faith so intact and the joy of, so evident in everything he said. And so if you have a trouble with that, or you'd like to know how can I have this peace of God which is prevailing over all these situations, all the trouble, I, we would love to take a Bible and open up, it up, open up with you and show you how you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, that you know Christ that you have that, uh, that you have access to Him and His Word, plugging this text into your thinking and to begin to practice these things, so that you can know the God of peace. And I pray that God will allow us to have that in the year to come. I want that to for all of us. I want that for myself. That God and His peace will just overwhelm and continue to keep us stable, regarding whatever may come. That we're ready. That we've been made prepared. That we've been given everything that we need. To endure, to, to have the so there's so there's no uh, there's no uncertainty, there's no feelings of anxiousness that prevails and overtakes us, and may may it be so in the Lord's will. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of just walking through this text, just piece by piece, and just thinking about how we might be a, do a better job of sifting our thoughts, identifying areas where our own thinking has deceived us that we that we don't really align carefully with what you're calling, what you're quali- how you qualified a Christian should be thinking. And then, Lord, I just pray that you just help us to, to be diligent as we move forward in this year with the, the uncertainties that are out ahead. We should not fear. We should not have a great sense of trepidation and, and concern because we know that whatever the future is, that you are there already, that you will, you will accompany us there that you'll see us through it, as you have in the years past, as you have so faithfully done in 2022, Lord. You've brought us to this point, and we just rejoice and praise your, your name for that. Now, Lord, I just pray that you would send us forth from here tonight with the same joy, the same confidence, and the same hope that we've read and seen in Paul's words here to the Philippians. May that be evident in us, in our conversations, in our, in our thinking, in our conduct with the, the brethren and sisters here at this church. Uh, Lord, we'll need your help and we'll need your Holy Spirit to equip us for that, that difficult task. It's impossible apart from you, so we're entirely dependent upon you. Lord, for anyone who's here who may not know Christ, who still uh, is kind of at doubt about these things and would like to know this peace of God that is, is mentioned and in, in, uh, promised to believers in this passage, I pray that they would come tonight and maybe perhaps find the, the, the truth of Christ and his, his redeeming and his grace his redeeming power and his grace, his willingness to forgive their sins and to restore them to to the Father. And Lord, we know that you're all too willing to do that. You're more than willing to do it, more willing than we are to come to you, Lord, in fact. And so, Lord, we thank you for the precious gospel, and we pray that this will be on our minds as we go from here. Guide us now and lead us, and may you get glory from us tonight. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.